That was a good clap. My hands are stinging. My, my, <laughs> my calluses are singing. It's now we have to pass that ball of energy to your neighbor. Zip zaps up, bitch. <laughs> Kill me. <laughs> if I never play zip zaps up again, it won't be too soon. You know, I was I used to be so game for that kind of shit. I used to love like theater exercises and like improv exercises. And now I'm just like, you know what would make me more creative to work with creative people who aren't assholes. <laughs> uh-huh. Hey! Funny how that one works. Yay! That's why Jen and I hardly ever do zip zaps out before we start. <laughs> but sometimes Sometimes we get that good game going. <laughs> Two-person zip zap zap is very, very difficult. There's a whole new set of rules. It's very tricky. <laughs> Much, Much more challenging than you'd expect. Uh, I am Lillian Bustle. I'm Jen Ponton. Mm, you are listening to a podcast called All the Fucks. How many fucks are there? Oh, my goodness. Uh, infinitum. Infinitum fucks. Plus one. So what is a fuck? Myriad fucks. For for our brand new listeners, of whom there are zero, (laughs) what qualifies as a fuck in the game of all the fucks? Uh, A fuck is... um, It's uh, dropping all of your books in the hallway and then uh, bending over and realizing that your tampon is leaking. Absolutely. While your crush is washing. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 100%. In the white pants that your mother insisted you wear that day. And when you stand up to play it cool, you hit your head on the locker door. Yeah. Oh, duh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's also fucks uh, in adulthood, like getting looped into someone else's multi-level marketing party that you didn't see coming. For sure. Where you're like, oh, this is just going to be a party. Uh Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> By the way, definitely missed opportunity with not calling it Lula Rao. Lula Rao. <laughs> Have you been watching that? No, not yet. I'm excited. No, I haven't either. It looks good, though. It does look good. I hear good things. And what I have started watching, and I'm late on it, but I haven't. Um, but but the HBO Max app does not really play well with Roku. I'll tell you the worst problem I have with HBO Max is that every time I select to watch it from 1991, it's so fucking long and it's all one file that it just does a little fucking rainbow swirl of doom until HBO Max is like, oh, no, fuck, no. we're not doing this. And Roku just like goes back to the home screen. And then I have oh, to start no. all over again. Come to my house. We will watch it at my house. Oh, fuck. I'll watch it with you any time. Yay. That sounds like a sleepover. (laughs) So good. (laughs) (laughs) Some people binge Lord of the Rings. We binge uh, evil nightmare clown aliens. With uh, uh, all of our favorite 1980s stars. Yes. Uh, Oh, my God. So good. I am very excited. So I'm, oh, I didn't tell you what I'm watching. I'm watching The Vow. Ooh, nice. So good. It's so good. Uh, 
I have seen this and suddenly I can't remember what it's even about. It's about Nexium. So right, oh, right. Okay. and it's, yes. okay. and it's made it. by filmmakers who are mostly dealing with this guy who was like full head down in the cult. Because the problem is all the, I mean, and I'm early on in the series, but the problem is they're, they're doing really good self-actualization stuff. Like this is stuff that I have done with people who are not sociopaths all of the new age stuff is spot on and they actually do a really good job so like there's merit to the work it's just it just seems to be that the man who did it who also seems to be quite brilliant um i'm at the point i'm maybe on episode like three so basically the main guy the guy who got out of it like his wife who mark. also yes mark yes. his wife has been out of it and has been trying to dematrix him and now he has proof and he's like oh fuck mm-hmm. so um yeah i'm excited about it it's dark it's also after i watched i'll be gone in the dark which was oh. unfathomably dark and so good and as a murderino i swear to god i was pausing the screen anytime they had evidence up and I would mm-hmm. get real close to the TV and read everything. Oh, yeah. So good. My eyes are killing me. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, that one's depressing. The Vow is fascinating. Um, Allison Mack, I believe Je- – wait, hang on a second. Is she the one who was – yeah, she was the one whose house it was. Oh, I don't know whose anything it was, but what mm-hmm. I understand is she was, like, the one who recruited girls. Yes, she just uh, surrendered herself for her three-year, um, three-year sentence, like three days ago. Shit. Um, I the first time that I heard about Nexium, I it was a podcast that was just about Nexium, um, and I've watched like three other um, documentaries or like short documentaries about it, and it's just. Um, it's just like uh, okay. I also uh, my recommendation. I think I mentioned this to you is called "Sounds Like a Cult." Um, it's this gal who wrote a book called Cultish, and it's about it's the a podcast about the modern day cults we all follow. So it's stuff like mega churches and Tony Robbins and things like that, and talking about how like uh, if something's if some if you have to pay to get out of something. <laughs> Like, they brought up fraternities and sororities, and they were like, if you miss uh, your weekly whatever with your sorority, you have to pay a fine, and then you have to pay pay money to get out of a sorority, like a timeshare. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So that's where, that's where the cult part comes in. When they tell you to, like, uh, tell you that all of your families and, and friends are, like, negative Nancys if they're not on board with you. And if they, like, make you change, like, make you change your lifestyle and they make you pay to get out of it, like, these are cult things for sure. Absolutely. Man, it's tricky. It's tricky. And to watch that, to watch that footage of Keith, too, like, yeah. I don't know. He might give off smarmy vibes in person, but also definitely not someone you'd want to, like, live with. Maybe someone whose books you'd want to read. Right. Certainly not someone I want to play midnight volleyball with. But but again, you know, or it might even be the other way because I, I do not – everything about him screams, like, asshole predator to me. 
Um, but of course, I already know the whole story. <laughs> um, I just like his cadence and the way he is so condescending. That's what it is to me. Like Mark and um, oh, the other gal that's like in Sarah. Yeah, the one who left that the dark haired one that everybody that she was talking first. Those two, when you see the old footage of them talking about the, I mean, the proverbs, for lack of a better word, like the tenets of the Nexium stuff, they seem to make it seem uplifting and they seem to make it make sense. And Keith Raniere seems to just be a tool bag who wants to listen to himself talk. He, you know what he was? It, it He reminds me exactly of that one boss that I told you who looked like the professor or the teacher in... Okay, the teacher in The Incredibles where Jack puts a tack on his seat. And <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about with the big glasses? Do you, do you know The Incredibles? I, I saw The Incredibles, but all I can think about is the lady who looks like a costume designer. Oh, okay. No, no. Um, um, <laughs> well, some some people at home will get the get the reference. But, yeah, I had a boss who looked like that little um, the little bald uh, professor. And he's like, look, look, he put a tack on his seat. You can see, and the tag's there, and the tag's not there. And they're like, you can't see anything on this footage. And then he gets mad um, and throws a hissy fit. That is who Keith Raniere reminds me of, my boss who reminds me of that guy. We're really on a roll today, aren't we? <laughs> wow. Uh, I also had a wonderful weekend. I um, It was incredibly beautiful here in the Northeast, and I did an outdoor brunch burlesque show um, no less yes in Newburgh New York with my friend Dolly Wood which is such a great name the best part about burlesque is not even sequins or bearskin it is epic puns well crafted (laughs) beautiful glorious puns yes yes the names are the names are really really great they're so good Maybe that's a good form of self-care, just reading the names of burlesque artists. Um, a performer who I worked in recent with recently, uh, her name is Quinceanera. Yes, I saw that. Loved that shit. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking loved that shit. So good. Show My More is also a good one. The steamiest Asian dumpling. I fucking love it. Show My! <laughs> it's so... Oh, it makes me so happy. Mm. I think that we... We're feeling squishy today. I wanted to read a little bit more of Necklace of Kisses to you guys. Yes. I just paused as if I was waiting for our listeners to be like, yes, that would be fine. (laughs) Are you guys on board? Press star. (laughs) One of the other things that I like about that um, sounds like a cult podcast is occasionally they'll drop a little audio in of like crickets. (laughs) Or or a crowd cheering or something. Yay! <laughs> so, since we seem to be hanging on by a thread today, um, we're going to pick up where we left off in Francesca Leah Block's beautiful novel, A Necklace of Kisses. If you if this is your first episode and you're dropping in, um, we're about three quarters of the way through the book, so you're probably going to want to go back and find the other episodes where we read you the beginning. <laughs> Mermaid. Wheatsy woke at dawn. Dirk was sleeping beside her, still wearing all his clothes. She kissed his cheek and went to the pool for a swim. The sky was still gray, just tinged with pink like the perfect shade of powder blush. The air smelled of rain. In spite of the early hour, someone had beaten Wheatsy into the water. 
A woman was moving joyfully under the cool blue mirror that reflected drifting morning clouds. It seemed as if she would never come up for air. When the woman finally did surface, Weetsy was not surprised to see Shelley. Weetsy was taken aback, though, by the fact that the mermaid was completely naked. She tried not to stare at her huge breasts. Hi, Shelley said. It felt like forever before she finally covered her breasts with her robe. Sal hates me to skinny dip. Isn't that the craziest thing to call it? I mean, some of these things you say, like, what would a fat dip be? Wearing lots of sweaters? But anyway, I can't help it sometimes. Luckily, I think he's still asleep. She glanced up at a window overlooking the pool. Weetsy thought she seemed suddenly anxious. How are you? Weetsy asked. Oh, fine. And you? It sounded rehearsed. It's been quite an adventure being here. Really, Shelley said wistfully. Not for me so much. It seems like nothing happens. I eat raw fish and seaweed, go to the salon, collect my mermaids. The best thing is swimming. What would you like to be doing? Weetsy asked. Shelley glanced up at the window again. Weetsy thought she saw a figure moving behind the drapes. I really miss the ocean, Shelley said softly, almost whispering, and my family, especially my mother. Sometimes I think I'm going crazy. Weetsy said it must be hard. I better go. Wait, Weetsy reached out and touched her hand. I have a car. If you want, I can take you someplace. Shelley's eyes filled with tears, but they didn't spill. She wiped them away quickly with the back of the hand Weetsy had touched. I can't, she said. Her voice was very small, like a child. Are you scared? I have to go. I'm in the last garden room by the arbor, Weetsy said, if you need me. She went to say goodbye to Dirk. Please come back soon, he said. She kissed his cheek. I will. I think I know what I need to do. After he left, she spent the rest of the day by the pool. She had brought some hotel stationery and a pen, and on it she made notes to help Tristan Sable with the screenplay for Max. Mermaid in captivity. Uh, plastic surgery mutilation. Faunish waiter. Heaven slash haven explains anima slash animus. Changelings. Fairy in Dolce Gabbana. Flying bride with munchkins. Spider lady. Soap opera angel with real wings, jewel kisses, mysterious footsteps. She stopped at the last note and shivered in the afternoon heat, but she didn't want to think about anything scary. Finding Zane Starling. What is Max doing now? This was something she hadn't let herself wonder. It was if, in order to be here, she had to pretend she would... It was if, in order to be here, she had to pretend he was just home alone in the cottage watching the news and reading the paper. But maybe he was living his own story. She didn't really want to think about this, either. She ordered a glass of lemonade and some chips and guacamole from the snack bar and kept working. Only once when she glanced up at Shelley's window did she think she saw a figure standing there again. And later, just before she headed back to her room to shower and dress for dinner, Weetsy could have sworn she heard a woman sobbing. How much difference one person can make. Why are punk shows like ancient pagan rituals? 
Witch Baby was sitting in the silent, pale, cathedral-like library, unable to concentrate on the paper she was supposed to be writing. She took the crinkled postcard from Angel Juan out of her pocket. What was it that he had been looking for and finally found? Why was he coming back from his trip? Why wasn't he coming here? Next to the postcard was a flyer which Baby had ripped off a kiosk that morning when she was getting her breakfast, Mushurito. It was for a hardcore punk gig in the city. It might help her with her paper, she told herself. And she needed to get out. She needed a distraction. Sitting here like this was useless. She got up and walked past the rows of students. Her steel-toed engineer boots echoed on the marble floor. She kept her eyes down, hoping no one was looking at her, wishing she had someone to go with her tonight. Witch Baby took Bart into San Francisco after dark. Then she walked through the mission to a warehouse where the band was playing. The streets were very dark, mostly deserted. The air felt cool and salty from the bay. Some skinheads walked by, kicking a beer can. One had a large scar down the side of his face. Witch Baby slouched further into her motorcycle jacket, glad she was wearing it, glad she was bald, remembering what Dirk told her before she left for college. Shows were more hardcore up north than in L.A. At least they used to be. She hadn't gone to any yet. Angel Wan's postcard was like a little animal in her pocket, scratching, nipping. It made her need to keep moving. Like a sugar glider. <laughs> A crown full of a crown full of sugar gliders. <laughs> the best thing you've ever said to me. Uh, witch baby sat in the dark warehouse, listening to the ferocious music, watching boys flinging themselves off the stage and slamming into each other in the pit. All boys. There was hardly another girl in the whole place. Witch baby tried to see something beautiful in the sweaty frenzy of bodies. Something ecstatic, like a pagan ritual. But she just felt sad and alone. She imagined ancient rites where nymphs and satyrs played drums and flutes and danced together, celebrating the flow of the wine, the sacred marriage of god and goddess. But there was no sign of the goddess here. Witch baby put her hand into the pocket of her leather jacket for Angel Wan's postcard. Instead, she found something else. Dear Witch Baby, I know that you stole this jacket from my closet when you left for school. You could have asked me, and of course I would have given it to you. Anyway, I'm glad you have it, because I have a lot of nice memories of wearing it when I was your age. I'm also glad that you and I have similar taste, whether you will admit it or not. <laughs> but the reason I am writing this is so that when you find it, you will know that I am thinking of you and loving you. I know that you don't like to make yourself vulnerable, but remember, that is the way love comes. Don't be afraid. I love you, Mom. Which baby wondered how she had missed the note this time? Nope. Which baby wondered how she had missed the note all this time? Just then, she looked up and saw a girl sitting by herself, watching her. The girl had short black hair, a round face, and almond-shaped eyes. She was wearing a fuzzy brown hooded jacket with ears. It made her look like a bear cub. Witch Baby smiled before she could stop herself, and the girl smiled back. She had a slight overbite. 
In that dark place, she had the brightest smile Witch Baby had ever seen. The girl walked over and sat next to Witch Baby. She had to shout to be heard over the music, and her voice made Witch Baby's ears ring. Good pain. Hey! Hi, Witch Baby said. She never knew what to say. It's too loud over here. Do you want to go get a drink? Witch Baby followed her to the bar. They ordered Cokes, and the girl said, Don't you go to Cal? Witch Baby nodded. I don't think I've seen you. I've seen you. I never run into any girls from school at these shows. Witch Baby looked over at the band. A boy did a somersault off the stage and into the crowd. Why do you come? I don't know. I'm bored. How about you? <laughs> Witch Baby shrugged. She couldn't exactly say that she was lonely. Or could she? What's your name? Lily. I wish I had a cool name like that. I'm Julie. That's a beautiful name. You're kidding, right? No, it's great. It's so normal. Is that a compliment? Sure. You should hear what my parents call me. Julie waited. Her eyes were slightly close together, very dark, and a bit sad. Witch baby. Julie smiled. Wow! Where'd they get that? They're just crazy, witch baby said. Julie nodded. Mine are crazy. But in this boring, normal way. At least my dad is. My mom used to be good crazy. What's that? Witch baby asked. She was an artist in the early 80s. Into punk. Actually, I'm named after her best friend, who was this legendary scenester, this beautiful debutante who freaked out her family by moshing at the Mabukai Gardens, but always had this perfect hair and wore the most beautiful vintage dresses with her boots and chains. I actually can't believe my dad let my mom name me after her. Why not? Witch Baby asked. He's so conservative, wants me to be a doctor or some shit. Plus, because of what happened to Julie... She seemed suddenly restless. Hey, let's get out of here. I know this place that has the biggest burritos you've ever seen. They walked down the street to the bright, loud, noisy restaurant where they gobbled up giant veggie burritos and grilled green onions and sucked on salted slices of lime. Witch Baby thought, it's so strange how much difference one person can make. Not to mention a few letters in a word. The burritos tasted a lot better than the mushuritos she'd been eating. Did you take Bart? Julie asked her when they'd finished their food. Witch Baby nodded. Because it is really late and I don't think it's that safe, to be honest. I've got a room in this hotel, if you want to stay. The hotel was a dark brick building, and Julie's room was tiny and drab, with only one small window that looked out at another dark brick building just a few feet away. But there was something so comforting about being in that room. They lit, Nag they lit Nag Shampa incense and tiny tea candles that Julie had brought in her backpack and sat cross-legged on the bed. My mom's staying in a hotel right now, Witch Baby said. Actually, she's not my mom. She's my stepmom. My real mom's basically insane. But anyway, my stepmother, who is just crazy, is having some kind of midlife crisis or something, and she checked into this hotel, and she won't tell my dad where she is. I love hotels, Julie said. They're so empty and full at the same time. Witch Baby nodded. She kind of knew what Julie meant. 
I just wish she didn't need to do that now. I mean, why couldn't she have gotten it out of her system when she was young? How old was she when she met your dad? Like, 19 or something? Julie shrugged. She didn't have a chance, I guess. What about your mom? Asked Witch Baby. Would she do that? No, but she should. I'm just so afraid of turning into my stepmom, Witch Baby said. I mean, she's cool and everything, but she never really had a life of her own. She's always been there for everybody else. I hear that, said Julie. I have this boyfriend, said Witch Baby. We've known each other since we were little kids. He's been all over the world, and now he's coming back to L.A., and I think he wants to be with me, but I haven't really done anything yet. I mean, even being in Berkeley is like a big deal or something. Julie nodded. Witch Baby felt herself getting drowsy. Her eyes closed. A Chinese girl with long black hair and a blonde girl wearing a pale blue lace dress were sitting in a large, dark, ornate nightclub holding bouquets of fake red silk roses. Boys and girls with mohawks, tattoos, and pierced faces were swarming around them. One of the boys leaned down and bit the blonde on the neck. Witch Baby's eyes popped open. Whatever happened to Julie? she asked. You mean my mom's friend? She died of AIDS, Julie said. She was only 20. Witch Baby shivered. If she hadn't died, my mom would have been an entirely different person, Julie said. But then I might not be here either. Witch Baby said softly, Isn't it weird how much difference one person can make? Hmm. Cherokee and the Sphinx Cherokee and Raphael woke at the same time and lay holding each other, watching the rainbows on the wall from the sun kissing the old flea market chandelier crystals they had hung in the window. Which I have hung in my window. <clears throat> I'm literally reading around the rainbows right now. <laughs> After so many years together, they knew exactly what each other's bodies needed. There's going to be a good swell this morning, Raphael said. Cherokee groaned. Uh, I've got a bad swell inside me. I think I'll just watch today. While he surfed, she sat on the sand, wrapped in a heavy Mexican blanket. The sea breeze whipped stray hairs across her face. Her fingers absently popped open juicy pods on the thick strands of seaweed she was weaving together. She could see Raphael cresting a wave. His body crouched, poised, part of the ocean. Usually they went into the water together. She loved surfing with him. And she loved music and dancing and clothes, but what did she really want? What did she love enough to spend her whole life doing? At least Wheatsy had her own shop and she'd made those movies. What if Cherokee got old like that and still hadn't done anything? What? Maybe she, maybe she wouldn't run away to a hotel to find the love she had lost. Maybe she would run away to find something she loved to do. Raphael ran up the beach in his wetsuit and dripped salt water from his dreadlocks onto her upturned face. She could see the form of his body perfectly silhouetted against the dazzling morning horizon. She wanted somehow to create something even partly that beautiful. How was the water? she asked as he dropped down on his knees beside her. Good. I missed you, though. And I'm starved. 
They went to their favorite greasy spoon on State Street and ate in the back patio with the ceramic sun ornaments and the peeling maritime mural eating huevos rancheros. Cherokee was quieter than usual. She knew she should be happy to be here with them, with him, having their favorite meal, but she just didn't feel it. Maybe because of her period? What's wrong, Key? I've been thinking about Wheatsy, she said. Ah, that hotel thing really got to you, eh? I was just thinking, what if I spend my whole life having fun, hanging out, not sure what I really want to do? Then I turn 40 and I, I realize I haven't really done anything. She's running away, but at least she's done some cool stuff. You're still young, babe. You'll figure it out. And besides, you've done some amazing things already. Just the way you can make things is incredible. I haven't made anything for years, Cherokee said. Neither of them, neither mentioned the wings, but they were both thinking about them. Years ago, Cherokee had constructed a pair of wings for her sister, Witch Baby. They were huge, intricate, covered with a rainbow of feathers. They had helped lift Witch Baby out of her sorrow. And then things turned strange. The wings had too much power. After they flew off by themselves, Cherokee vowed never to create anything like them again. I don't even know what my major is, Cherokee said, trying somehow to make things feel normal. I feel like I'm here to be with you, and that's about it. He rubbed her bare knee. <laughs> I'm a lucky man. She kissed him and smiled, but the sadness still lay inside of her, curled up like a sleeping animal, ready to awaken. When they got back to the apartment, there was a large box waiting on the doorstep. They brought it inside, and Cherokee tore it open. It's the Sphinx, she said. What? The Sphinx sewing machine. It's an early model singer. I can't believe she sent this. She must have done it before she went away. Attached to the sewing machine, there was a little note. Cherokee, once when you were younger, you made a pair of wings for your sister. I know that some scary things happened after that, but I want to tell you, I think you've grown into your magic now. Use it well. Love, Mom. Suddenly, Cherokee felt badly about how she had treated Weetsy at the Pink Hotel, especially what she had said about her clothes. Weetsy was right. That was just mean-spirited. Her mother had been her fashion idol since Cherokee could remember. <laughs> Not that Cherokee planned on ever letting her know that she felt this way, of course. Raphael showered for class, and Cherokee sat at the black and gold sewing machine, rubbing her hands along its smooth sides. She knew that it had once belonged to Dirk's grandma Fifi, and there was a long story about it before that, but she had never really paid attention to those things. Now she wished she had. The machine seemed to hold a secret like a real sphinx. Cherokee did not go to class that day. Instead, she stayed home and made sketches of the pictures she had seen in her mind for years and had been afraid to see. She sketched sleek, stretchy, wetsuit-inspired outfits with zippers everywhere, which unzipped into smaller and smaller pieces of clothing. She made sketches of tiny mini-dresses under buoyant wire hoop skirts overlaid with tulle. She sketched iridescent shark-skin suits, sweaters and knit pants trimmed with pale feathers, sheer voile trench coats over narrow trousers and tank tops and slim dresses coats and hats made of hundreds of dewdrop beaded silk taffeta petals she drew clear heart-shaped charms filled with dried flowers stars tiny dolls bits of poetry and pictures of goddesses to use on the poles of zippers 
She imagined that each piece of clothing would have little secret spells written into the lining, incantations that would make the wearer feel her beauty and her power. That was what clothing could do, Cherokee realized. It could seduce, soothe, enhance, disguise, protect. It could empower, like magic. And Weetzie said Cherokee had grown into her magic now. Then Cherokee thought about her mother making her own kind of magic at the Pink Hotel, transforming her own life, and maybe theirs. Cherokee was suddenly no longer afraid. Amethyst Kiss Weetzie had eaten a bento box of soba noodles, rice, sautéed tofu, seaweed, and pickled vegetables at the Japanese restaurant, and was walking through a bamboo grove back to her room. Santa Ana's played the stalks like an instrument. She paused by a small stone pagoda and looked up at the moon. Was Max looking at it too, this instant? It seemed strange to her that he hadn't tried to call her all this time. Maybe the girls hadn't told him where she was, but he could have at least tried her cell phone. She shivered, remembering the voice messages she had received. At least the messages had stopped since Perry and Bean left, and so had the footsteps. She hoped her friends were all right and had reached their destination. Maybe the warlock would protect them. Maybe the elf king would find them. This hotel has done some strange things to me, Weetzie thought. Mostly, it has made nothing seem strange anymore. The memory of the obscene-sounding voice on her phone was still shivering up and down her spine, so when she heard someone behind her, she whirled around right away, brandishing her hotel key. "'It's me,' Pan said. "'Careful with that thing.' Embarrassed, she dropped the key back into her purse. "'Sorry, I'm a little on edge.' "'Why is that?' She didn't want to say it was because she hadn't made love in almost two years— she had received phone messages about abusing one's private parts, that since she'd come here she was sure she was being followed, that there had been three nightmarish people with an empty baby carriage on the path, and that she believed Sal had captured and mutilated a mermaid. "'Thank you for your help,' Pan said as they walked. "'Dashelheart called me today. I have an audition next week.' "'That's wonderful,' said Weetzie. I know it sounds kind of stupid, but it means a lot to me. I've wanted this chance forever. It gets frustrating. Weetzie stopped and smiled up at him. I am so glad. There was a heavy silence. Weetzie looked up at the sky. What a pretty night. Look at that moon. And you're a moon girl, said Pan. She was wearing her white satin trench and her white jeans, her freshly bleached hair shimmered. She moved away from him. Well, I just wanted to thank you. I'll let you go. He started to leave, but Weetzie grabbed his large, smooth wrist. It felt like marble, except for the heat and the pulse. Wait, will you do me one favor? He grinned, flashing the gap between his teeth. Can I kiss you? A TV screen was buzzing with static that then dissolved to let Weetzie tumble through into a kitchen. A woman who looked like a depressed Italian movie star was watching a soap opera and drinking red wine. A little boy with curly hair tugged on her skirt, but she shooed him away as the actors kissed. 
The boy tried to take her hand, on which gleamed a ring with a purple stone, but she pulled it away. He gazed at her wistfully and then went outside into an overgrown garden. As he ran through the flower beds, the garden changed, becoming more and more wild on it until more and more wild until it was a forest. The boy stripped off all his clothes and kept running. He splashed through shallow streams, rolled in piles of leaves, plastered mud all over his body. Wheatsy could see him from the back as he ran deeper into the trees. He had a small, erect tail protruding at the base of his spine. Suddenly, he turned around and held something up. It was a many-faceted purple jewel. Wheatsy spit the amethyst out into her hand. Before she could show it to him, Pan was gone. This time she thought at first that she must have imagined the footsteps. After all, even Pan had made her jump just a short time earlier. She was sure Perry's monstrous family was gone. Who would want to bother her here? But then she thought of the shadow in the room above the pool and wondered if Sal might have a reason to hate her. If he didn't yet, she thought he might soon. She glanced behind her. The path was empty. Even so, Wheatsy ran the rest of the way back up to her room and locked the door. Hilda Hilda Doolittle was sitting behind the counter in the sunny front room of Wheatsy's, eating a Krispy Kreme donut and writing poetry in her journal, when her boyfriend Ezra walked in. She thought of hiding the donut, but it was too late. She put it down and wiped the sugar off her fingers, though she wanted to lick them, and quickly closed her journal. "'What's up, Hilda?' Ezra said. He started walking around, running his fingers over the beaded dresses. With a click of each bead, Hilda winced. She hoped Ping wouldn't come back now. "'Not much.' "'Is this your poetry?' he asked. She put her sticky hands on the journal. Uh, "'I was thinking, how serious are you about this poetry stuff?' You know the answer to that, Ezra. Well, then. He walked over to her and leaned on the counter. She could feel his warm breath. The goatee that he had grown recently made him look like the devil. His eyes were cold and sparkling. She had no idea why she loved him so much. Uh, I've been wanting to tell you a few ideas I have. She waited. Her fingers still felt gluey with sugar. She wished that she had worn the pink and black lace dress with the sweetheart neckline and borrowed the pink rhinestone chandelier earrings from the jewelry case. Instead, she had on a black beaded sweater that made her sweat and an itchy black skirt. Uh, first, he said, leaning closer, we need to do something about those glasses. He reached up very carefully and removed her frames without touching any part of her. Panic drummed at her throat. She wanted to snatch back her glasses, but instead she smiled at his blurry face. And Hilda, said Ezra, remember what we talked about, no more sugar. She heard the soft crumpling sound of the greasy donut bag as he took it. She heard him rummage around, find a Krispy Kreme, and take a bite. Uh, I don't mean to be harsh, but it's a tough world out there, Ezra said, his mouth full of donut. You've really got to look like a rock star to read at a coffee house in L.A. these days. Hilda kept smiling, but she felt sick. Her hands went to her thighs. Oh, the black skirt was too tight. Why had she worn it? Ezra said, There's another thing. I'm not thrilled with your name. I keep thinking you should try to find something catchier, maybe like with a little hip-hop vibe. 
Hot dog. <laughs> he laughed. Just kidding. Uh, how about Big H? She thought he was raising his hand in a high five, so she held hers up shyly, but he didn't slap her palm, so she pretended she was fixing her hair. <laughs> I have some more ideas too, but I have to go now. Hilda heard him toss, ba- toss her glasses back onto the counter. My brother had that laser surgery on his eyeballs, Ezra said. He's got 20-20 now. They burn the cornea or something. It's really cool. Later. He was gone. Hilda put on her glasses and picked up her poetry book. She didn't even know why she wanted to cry. What a fucking dick. (laughs) Don't I know you? What do you wear to an art opening of work by a man whom you should have kissed over two decades ago? In the morning, Weetzie went to the hotel jewelers, carrying the pouch that Lacey had given her. Inside it was a pearl, a ruby, an emerald, a sapphire, and an amethyst. Is it possible to have these set by tonight? She asked the diminutive man behind the counter. He squinted up at her with his pale eyes. He was wearing a silk turban and had a long, grizzled beard. His hands were fine and as quick as little brown birds. Jewels twinkled star-like on midnight blue velvet in the glass case. Hot pink, electric blue, and gold sari fabric covered the cushions on the ornately carpeted floor. "'Don't I know you?' he said. Wheatsy, who did not think that anything could surprise her anymore, gasped. "'You're him!' she said. "'What brings you here?' "'I'm escaping.' escaping how ungrateful i appear to you out of a lamp of all things and grant you three wishes any three wishes and now you're escaping what are you doing here this happens to be my hotel i like to (laughs) pop in every now and then to see how things are going wheatsy sat down on a stool in front of the counter and rubbed her eyes When she opened them, the man was still there. He twirled his whiskers rather madly. Did I wish for the wrong things? She tightened her fingers around the silk pouch of jewels. Who is to say? You wished for your heart's desire. Now it has changed. But it hasn't, Wheatsy said. Then why did you come here? I wished for a duck man for Dirk and he came. They're still in love like the day they met. I wished for a little house to live in, and Dirk's grandma Fifi died and left us her cottage, and I still live there. I wished for my secret agent lover man, she said. But now he isn't. Maybe he never was. Why do you say that? Because he watches the television all the time? Because he is sad? Because his heart is broken? I tried to wish for world peace, Wheatsy said. She felt her throat close up. You said it wouldn't work. I'm afraid not. Alas, your world leaders keep getting stupider and stupider. Then what do we do? Make your own peace, the man said. Now, pearls for transformation, rubies for passion... Emeralds for fertility, sapphires for truth, amethyst against intoxication. 
Let me see what I can do with those jewels of yours. Zane Starling So that evening, Weetzie wore the necklace made of gifts from a mermaid, a diva, a fairy, an angel, and a fawn, and fashioned by a genie who years before Weetzie had set free from his lamp. With it, she wore her pink sandals and a strapless white satin mini-dress she had made with a sheet from the gift store, using her miniature hotel sewing kit. She arrived at the gallery a little late because it had taken her longer than she thought to finish making the dress. People were spilling out of the door and sipping champagne in plastic cups around the reflecting pool. Weetzie shouldered through the crowd to look at the painting in the front window. She noticed that something had changed, but she wasn't sure what. A waiter came by with a glass of champagne, and she took it, wondering if Pan's amethyst would keep her from becoming too drunk. It didn't seem to work, and soon she was on her fourth glass. The bubble stung her nose, and her knees wobbled. She felt full of golden light. Another waiter came by with a tray of hors d'oeuvres, and she was suddenly so hungry. She had been too excited and too busy sewing to eat. Then another waiter with a tray, and another. She devoured potato puffs, crab cakes, mini quiches, shrimp satay. She washed it all down with more champagne and stumbled around looking at the art. Zane Starling's paintings were huge and disarmingly lifelike in spite of their subject matter. There was a painting of a woman with a mermaid's tail holding the hand of her bleeding two-legged twin. There was a naked hermaphrodite with rubies coming out of his, her mouth. There was a red-haired pregnant woman with a whip riding on the back of a man with pointed ears. There was a fawn with hairy haunches, a tail, cloven hooves, and devilish horns, masturbating, watching a large TV with a handsome blonde angel on the screen. The angel had a baby lamb in his arms. Weetzie went back to the painting in the front window. She looked at it carefully and realized... There was a new jewel on the woman's necklace. An amethyst, just like the one from Pan. Must have been the champagne, but she could have sworn she saw the woman's lips curl into an eerie smile. Then she turned around. A tall man, standing in a crowd of people. He was wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, and heavy heavy soil... He was wearing a white t-shirt, blue jeans, and heavy-soled black shoes... His straight blonde hair was graying at the temples and cut very short, except for the gray and a slight creepiness around. Oh. <laughs> except for the gray and a slight crepiness around his smiling eyes, Zane Starling looked just the same as he had over twenty years ago. Weetzie touched her throat where the necklace felt cool against her pulse. She smoothed her hands over her dress, suddenly embarrassed to be wearing a sheet. Then she walked over to him. Excuse me. May I talk to a, talk to you for a minute? He nodded politely to the people around him and walked with her over to the front of the gallery. She gulped at the cool night air that came through the door. Sweat trickled down the sides of her neck. How are you? Oh, fine. How are you tonight? He said. His voice was kind, but his eyes were darting back and forth over her face. She wasn't sure that he knew she, who she was, but she couldn't bring herself to tell him yet. Maybe he would remember. I saw the painting in the window. I'm staying here in the hotel, and and I I couldn't believe it. It was such a weird coincidence. I've been wanting to see you. I wanted to tell you something. 
He smiled, but this time he looked a little wary. I'm Wheatsy, she said. Wheatsy Bat? We went to the prom together. Of course, Wheatsy. Your skin, the skin around his green eyes crumpled softly. You look just the same. I just couldn't place you. Can we go outside for a second, she said. She was feeling as if she might faint. The naked hermaphrodite on the wall winked at her, but it might have been the champagne. The moon was mirrored in the reflecting pool, a huge floating lotus. The little glass shops along the water were all closed. Wheatsy glanced over at the jewelers, but it was completely dark inside. Your work is so beautiful, Wheatsy said. It's, it's so magical, and I, I try not to use that word too much because it is so sacred to me, you know? I, I like this word, numinous. Because it's not overused. It's not even in every dictionary. And it sounds like luminous, which is another word I love. And it means supernatural, mysterious, a sense of the presence of divinity. I always thought that if anyone ever asked me to be on that program inside the actor's studio, not that they would ask me. I don't know if you've seen any of the movies I've been in. Dangerous Angels is one. Not that James Lipton, the host guy, would ask me to be on, but, you know, it's it's a fantasy that I would say numinous when they asked me what my favorite word was. And I guess pustule is my least favorite word, or maybe pitiful. She stopped. Oh, God. I sound so pitiful. What am I talking about? It's all right, he said. She wished he wasn't so nice. She wished there was something imperfect about him. Anyway, what I wanted to say was, I'm so sorry I pushed you away that night on our prom. You were too much for me, I think. This lady I met at a wedding, she said you are my animus, but I wasn't ready for you yet. I was too young. I didn't like myself enough or something. Anyway, I just wanted to say I'm sorry. He nodded patiently, but she could tell he wasn't really following her. It struck her that if he had been upset at all about what had happened, he had forgotten about it a long time ago. Well, that's very nice of you, but don't worry about it, he said. He smiled over her head at someone. I'm glad you could come to the show. I meant to ask you, Weetsy said quickly. Who, who is that a painting of? She pointed to the woman in the window. She hadn't let herself think about it before, but the picture did resemble her, not to mention her necklace of kisses. Oh, that's my wife, Karen. I wish you could meet her, but she's at home with the kids, and she has her practice. She's a therapist. How many kids do you have? Wheatsy asked. Zane Starling pointed over to another painting. It showed a woman with six arms. In the palm of each hand, she held a tiny baby. In her belly was a self-portrait of Zane Starling, sleeping peacefully. The woman had pale skin, rosy cheeks, long brown hair, and blue eyes. Weetsy was not sure if it made her feel relieved or sad that she did not resemble Tracy Calla. Except for something about her chin, mouth, and neck, she looked nothing like Weetsy either. Six. The oldest is in college and the baby is five. Every time Karen gave birth, she'd say, what a miracle it was, and shouldn't we see what other combination we should come up with? So, <laughs> but I have to keep selling a lot of work. Where are you living? asked Weetsy. We have a house in upstate New York. You should visit sometime. Thank you, said Wheatsy, but it wasn't for the invitation. He had not blinded her. He had not kissed her. He had freed her. Wheatsy felt something scratchy in her eye. She rubbed it with the back of her hand. A tiny
tiny spark of a jewel slid down her cheek encased in a tear. It was recognizable as a diamond, even to a rhinestone fanatic. Weetsy handed it it to Zane Starling. Then she left. Coyote. Max rode his mice... (laughs) Max rode his... (laughs) A bicycle. A bicycle! Max rode his motorcycle out to Joshua Tree to visit his friend Coyote. Coyote lived in a sand-colored adobe house near the monument and held sweats in the lodge he had built. He rode his horse Luna through the Joshua Trees at sundown. He watched the sky, followed the cycles of the moon. He never missed Los Angeles. Coyote wondered why he had ever lived there at all. Max rode under the arching gray bridges of freeway, past mini-malls, gas stations, greasy fast-food places, casinos, strips of empty highway and dry brush with billboards for topless bars and retirement living. The air smelled foul. His eyes stung. He stopped at a rest area to use the men's room and kept thinking about how people disappeared at places like this. He wondered if he might disappear now that Weetsy was gone. Finally, he got to the windmills on the hill. The air began to feel cleaner. There was a powdered sugar sprinkle of snow on the distant mountains. The horizon danced with blue heat. Max rode through the desert cities. He imagined finding he imagined finding a little cabin and living out here with the roadrunners and the bats. Each town had a market, a bank, a gas station, a video store, a used bookstore, cheap Chinese food, coffee, cigarettes, beer. What else could anyone want? Max thought to himself, Right? I'll collect scraps of metal and other junk to put in my yard, among the cactus plants and creosote. I'll sit on my dilapidated porch and drink my coffee and smoke some weed and try to learn what the stars are saying. In a place this dry and colorless, I will not be able to think of her. When he arrived at Coyote's, they did sit on the porch and drink coffee, and Max smoked a little pot he'd brought, but, of course, he did not stop thinking of Wheatsy for a moment. I wish I were more like you, he said to his friend. And why is that? You are so centered all the time, like you don't need anyone in order to be okay. Coyote tossed his head and laughed, bitter and deep as the coffee they were sipping. Let me tell you something. The other day, this guy came to one of my sweats. Native American dude, very angry, very hard. He started laying into me at one point about everything. My name, the way I spoke. He goes, you think you are the noble savage? It's every fucking cliche there is, man. Get off this high horse. You are so full of shit. Things like that. I didn't say anything. I just walked away. He was wrong, and he was right. Have I ever told you about who I really am? Max shook his head, a little ashamed. Should he have asked? Listened better? They had known each other since they were twenty. Coyote had always been someone he admired so much. Maybe he didn't want to look past the grace. See, my dad... He was that guy. Drunk, womanizer, pissed off. He beat the shit out of us. I was becoming him at 16, but I didn't want it, so I changed my name and left my family and tried to be perfect. He laughed again, but his eyes flickered darkly. And now, 
This asshole comes into my lodge and tells me I am a cliché because I try to be pure, because I try to be what we once were. But you do it, said Max. Coyote shook his head. You don't really know me, he said. Max looked out over the desert. A light rain was beginning to fall, coaxing fragrance out of the earth, the sweet acrid green smell of creosote rising up. The bright moon made the raindrops glisten and cast strange, twisted shadows of Joshua trees. Lily, his witch baby, had once told him that those plants, which only grew in a few places in the world, were actually a type of flower. She had said, a weird lily, like me. He realized with regret that he hadn't disputed this, that she had called herself weird. He was too busy thinking it wasn't a surprise she was a little odd, his child and Vixan's. It was incredible that she had turned out as healthy as she had, probably because Wheatsy had raised her. She left me. I figured that was why you came. I dream of her all the time. In the dreams, I am following her down this path. She hears my footsteps behind her, and she is afraid, but she can't see me. Coyote nodded and took a drag on Max's joint. His face was lined. His hair was pulled back in a long braid. He wore a tattered western shirt, Levi's, and boots. Max remembered seeing Coyote sprinting through the streets of Hollywood, wearing a fringed suede jacket with his long black hair streaming behind him. He was so young. Max had driven by and honked and waved. Coyote waved back, laughed, and kept running. Max realized that his friend had never seemed real before. He had been like a symbol of something wise and beautiful and perfect that Max could never attain, but that could guide him. He could still guide him, maybe better than ever. Let's sweat, Coyote said. Before they entered the lodge, they knelt on the ground in the rain and dug up clumps of mud with their hands. Coyote said, make your spirit. And Max found the clay becoming a large dog that resembled a horse, though he had planned on making some kind of mutt. The lodge smelled of cedar and eucalyptus. Sweat poured out of Max until he couldn't see any more. He felt every pore of his body opening. I can't stop seeing the people jumping, Max said. Coyote nodded. What do you do with that kind of pain? Coyote pointed to the clay dog in Max's hand. Give it to him to carry. The strong part of yourself. Then he said... Once I went to see a very wise man. I saw him once a week for months. Every time I went there, I sat and talked about how fucked up the world was. I was getting more and more frantic. Poverty, disease, war. He listened and listened. Finally, he said, What happened to you when you were a boy? And I said, My father beat me every day. Max smoothed his thumb over the clay dog. He did not look at his friend. Maybe it is time to look at the disasters inside of you, Coyote said gently. He began to hum deep in his throat. Max closed his eyes. He saw a little boy sitting in a dark closet. 
Someone was pounding on the door of the boys' room so that the walls shook. Sweat, or maybe tears, poured down Max's cheeks. It was only the beginning of remembering. Later, as they lay on their backs on Coyote's adobe roof, looking at the constellations, Max asked, Why death, do you think? The Iroquois say that the world was too full, so the men and women got together separately to find an answer. The men came up with the idea of not having any more children, but the women refused to give up having babies. Death was their answer. Max nodded. He took a deep breath. It felt like he hadn't breathed like that in months, maybe years. Coyote said, She needed a pink hotel. What about you? What's your pink hotel? Max didn't have to think about it. She is, he said. Ghost. Maybe she was too drunk to notice, but no one followed her home that night. She took off her pink sandals and lay down on her bed. The room spun, not unpleasantly, like riding a carousel. Her fingers touched the stones in the necklace of kisses. One by one, the pearl looked like a little moon. The ruby reminded Wheatsy of shining blood, and the emerald was leaves in the sun. The sapphire was a burning lake. The amethyst, flowers on fire. But each jewel was so much more than those things, too. Shelley, Heaven, Perry, Tristan, Pan. Her eyelids closed. There was a soft rapping sound at the French doors, but there was no wind tonight. More curious than afraid, though she didn't know why, Weetsy jumped up and hid behind the curtains. Then she peeked into the garden. A faint, milky light was hovering over the plants. A dream of sleepy flowers. As soon as she saw it, Weetsy wanted the light to come into her room. It's me, a voice said. She opened the doors, and the light poured in. It hovered above the carpet, illuminating the flowers on the wallpaper, making them seem alive. Then the light began to take form, like a TV image swarming with static before it comes into focus. Head, body, arms, legs, feet, the figure of a man. I uh, hope I didn't give you the utsies. But she wasn't uneasy at all. She had been waiting. Daddy? said Wheatsy. Why did it take you so long? I uh, can't say that was the response I expected, he said. His voice was the same, gravelly, cracking from cigarettes and booze, just fainter. I thought you'd think you were dreaming. Not anymore, said Wheatsy. It's all a dream. I didn't come because you didn't call for me. I didn't think you'd hear me. He shrugged. His limbs were long and loose like a marionette's in his dark suit. He had shadows beneath his eyes and in the hollows of his cheeks. Weetsy had imagined this so many times for so many years. How would she? Re how he would return to her. How he would put his arms around her. She would feel his scratchy chin and smell the smoke in his jacket. But now she had no desire for him to hold her. Her hand went numb and she flexed her fingers to bring the heat and circulation back. I didn't call tonight, she said. Did I? No, someone else. Weetsy looked at her father's ghost. She thought she saw a 
blurry x-ray of bones and organs beneath his clothes. Where the heart should have been, there was only light. She twisted the ring on her finger. Max, she said. He's been following you, said Charlie Bat. Wheatsy's other hand went numb. She was remembering the sounds of footsteps on the path. Had Max been there? Had he been watching her this whole time? Had he seen her kiss anyone? Not his body. He can't help it. He dreams of you, and a part of his spirit follows you. He doesn't mean to scare you, baby. He doesn't know it, but tonight he sent me instead. She imagined Max lying on their bed at home, dressed in his coat and trousers, curled up on his side. She could see his organs and bones through his clothes. His heart was still there, still beating, but he was turning into a ghost. Why? she asked. He wants you to come home, Wheatsy. Daddy, she said. Why did you leave? He had left her twice. Once when he fought with Brandy Lynn and drove away in the yellow Thunderbird, his clothes soaked with the gin she had thrown at him. Once with a handful of pills in a dark corner in his apartment in New York City. All she had wanted both times was for him to come back and hold her, as if that would take all the sadness away. But when he died, it was Max who put his arms around her and tried to take her sadness into him, along with all his own sadness, the unfathomable sadness of the world. Charlie did not answer. He had left a third time. The room was dark, the garden beyond the French doors was dark, and there was a chill in the room. Fuck. I wish I had something better to contribute today, but... No, it's good. This is good. Feelings are feelings. Oh, you're wearing your toxic masculinity. I sure am. Ah, girl, I'm so excited. I hope my hometown is is taken because they're back. Our girls are back. But I haven't submitted since 2018. And they did, they did like... A solid 20 minutes to a half an hour begging for hometowns. And Im- yes. immediately yeah. after they begged, they were like, listen, if you've sent one, we we know. Hang in there. Please mm-hmm. send it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mine was really good, and I made it succinct. So nice. I am hoping my hometown will make it, which yes. is if you guys want to listen to it uh, ASAP, something that I did. We did our hometowns, I think, like, last spring, sometime in spring of um, 2020. And for those who don't know what we're talking about, um, My Favorite Murder is a true crime comedy podcast. And in between telling each other their favorite murders, um, the podcast partners who are on it, Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark, ask people to write in with their – with murders that are either from their area or – touched them in some way or sometimes it's just silly things about shit hidden in walls which i also love and would listen to an entire podcast about love that shit yes it's so good they're wonderful um and i also i even liked all of the other hosts doing like their favorites of oh i thought that was very cute i didn't listen to all of them but it was cute a well curated send up that i did listen through i thought i was gonna skip i did not skip so that's mm-hmm. um, that's a win. Right on. <laughs> right on. Um, listen, fuck buddies. Uh, mm-hmm. We need you to email us or DM us or whatever. Um, we are 
if you really enjoyed our episode last week, All the Shit Shows, um, and you're thinking about a play that you did or a student film that you did or a musical you wrote that was a giant disaster or even something that you saw that was a giant shit show, um, we want to hear them for something really important. So please reach out to us. It can be anonymous if you like, or or rather, um, I mean, we're probably going to know it was you, but if you want to leave out your name and any... Uh, like specific details that would link you to whatever the terrible show or terrible person was. <laughs> you don't have to drop names of anything like that. You can Greek it or just, you know, say an undisclosed blah, blah, blah. That's not what we care about. We care about the story. So we will mm-hmm. not, um, we won't press you to like, yeah, air dirty laundry. We just want the story. So yeah. let's get into it. Please DM myself or Lillian or one of our socials or send us an email at all the f.cks podcast at gmail.com. And if you if you choose to do that, uh, yeah, we want to hear voice memos, though. Like we want. Can you download voice memos off of Instagram? I don't. I don't know if you can do that. Yeah, try to send us a file. And we're going to set up a Google phone number soon. But we're launching something exciting. And we know that so many of you (laughs) have been in community theater things where you've been like, why am I here? Or even been on well-paid actual professional things where you're like, holy goddamn crap, how is this person Uh in charge of anything? (laughs) We. Totally. But we, uh, this is a bit of catharsis that we are about to um, launch into the world, and we want to hear your stories. Mm-hmm. Yay. That's it. That's it. All right, Punky Pies. Um, be well. Be safe. We love you. Woo woo. Love you. I love you. You sneeze like a bunny. I do. Sometimes I pee myself. (laughs) Same girl, same. (laughs) Oh, wait, here comes some more. (laughs) Bless you, bless you. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's like watching a bunny. (laughs) 